How much do you know about pregnancy and alcohol? The reality may surprise you. Alcohol exposure while in the womb may cause fetal alcohol spectrum disorder in unborn children. It may lead to lifelong physical and or neurodevelopmental impairments such as problems with memory, attention, cause and effect reasoning, and difficulties in adapting to situations. For such an impactful disorder, it is rarely spoken about in the popular media. This podcast will take you behind the scenes to chat with the people who understand FASD. This is Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Welcome, welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to this brand new episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. My name is Kurt Lewis, your friendly neighborhood podcaster. And today I'm interviewing another amazing guest. This week, I'm talking to a foster dad of two children with FASD, a regular guest speaker and FASD advocate, Neil Reynolds. How's it going, Neil? Yeah, good, Kurt. Thank you very much for, for having me. Pleasure's all mine, Neil. The pleasure's all mine. Tell me, do you listen to podcasts? Are you much of a podcast listener? I'm not a great podcast listener, but I do listen to them, and particularly I'm a bit obsessed about FASD, and uh, as people will find out as, as this interview goes on, I'm sure, but I've listened to most of the FASD podcasts, and, yeah, they've been really good. I don't really have a favourite, but I think when you listen to anybody speak that has some knowledge, you generally come away with either some more knowledge or, or at least a, a reminder of things that you may need to do or may be helpful in this journey. Definitely. I, well, I've got some stiff competition out there, haven't I? Hopefully I can live up to it. I'm sure it will. I've listened to yours and they're, they're very impressive and I'm a bit daunted by that. I, I hope I can live up to some of the other guests you've had on. Well, I hope I can lift up your expectations, Neil. Cracking on to on with it, I guess, getting down to the main point. When did you first hear about fetal alcohol spectrum disorder? Well, I guess probably our first real experience was nine years ago. I had heard of FASD but really didn't know much about it other than it was alcohol-related disability and that was probably all I knew about it. But nine years ago, we had a little bloke come to uh, live with us for six weeks straight out of the hospital. He'd had a VSD, a hole in the heart repair, and we had some medical background. So he came to us for six weeks and six weeks turned into 12 weeks and 12 weeks has turned into nine the big years. And, uh, yeah, pretty well straight away we got his history and we understood enough. My wife had been a special needs educator, so she had a, a much better understanding of FASD than I did, but we pretty much worked out and started to investigate some of his issues and it was quite clear that FASD was right up on the top of the list to, to be his, his likely diagnosis. Uh, so we started on the journey then and finding out what we possibly could about FASD. I don't know if you'd remember, but when would be the point you first suspected that the child that was in your care had FASD? Is there like a point we went, oh. Yeah. I can't say that it was exactly a point, but it came pretty clear straight away. So he had like had these amazing tiny little fellow, four and a half months. He was pretty crook because he'd uh, just had a heart repair, but he had this incredible inability to regulate himself and there are a few other signs, but he could chuck a tantrum at four and a half months mm. that would put 99% of the population in the shade. Mm. He was he was absolutely off the Richter scale. And we knew straight away that they weren't what you would consider normal tantrums either. They were really 
uh, at the high end of the scale. And we had read his history and we sort of thought straight away, well, there was some problem. And then the more we looked into it and we understood his difficulties, so he had feeding difficulties, hole in the heart, inability to regulate himself, wasn't meeting all his goals. He wasn't that far behind, but he wasn't meeting all his goals. And we sort of put two and two together and said by the time he was about six months, we need to get this into motion. So he'd probably only been with us six weeks when we we had pretty uh, strong feelings that it was possibly or probably FASD that was his major underlying issue. That began you on this journey, seeking a diagnosis, I'm guessing, and yeah, we were lucky we were allied to the hospital, to the local hospital here through our older boy who's a bit of a frequent flyer at the hospital. So we took the little bloke to his pete and said, this is what we think. She sort of looked at all our information and we had a discussion and we all sort of said, yeah, I think it's quite obvious that there's a strong chance that could be the issue, so let's get it into motion. And so the hospital started the process of, getting his diagnosis done, and he was diagnosed uh, well before he was 18 months old. We had a diagnosis within 12 months. So it was good because it gave us a platform to understand what the issues were, but also she immediately, that's his paediatrician, immediately set us on a, on a program of intervention. And we had a, a fair bit of knowledge from the wife's experience, and I went into FASD head down, you know, bum up and tried to read and learn everything I possibly could and watched every single um, video I could find on FASD and read every single book and I got into Telethon who had just started the FASD research program in Perth and I went to their very first presentation and from there they sort of said, oh, we're looking for community advocates and, and parents that can help us along the journey. Would you be interested? And so I, I volunteered to go and join uh, the program as a research buddy for the the research program in FASD through Telethon. So that was where we got into motion. So it was pretty early in his life, thankfully. Wow. I guess in that kind of helping out that research helped you get more understanding of FASD? Yeah, I think it was an amazing experience for me because he said not only did I learn a lot, I think they also learned a lot because they got into this little bloke's journey very early. And we tried a lot of things and we could see you know, things that worked and things that didn't work. And they had lots of people putting input into suggestions that were worth trying. And so we investigated all these different forms of intervention and we were able to sort of over a period of time to work out what helped him and what was probably of, of little value. And so it was a great learning experience for all of us on giving the researchers an opportunity to have first-hand experience with someone starting the journey. And fantastic for me to be able to access all that information straight off the bat. It was, and it was great. It was just made such a difference to his lives. So having that early diagnosis, do you think that's really benefits the, that child you're taking care of? Oh, clearly it has made a massive difference. And we were, we were lucky in respect that we sort of got a, a good exposure to what happens also when you don't because 12 months after he joined us, his sister's placement fell down and we put our hand up and said, well, the siblings should be together. And she came to us at just over four years of age. Now, she'd had no intervention, no diagnosis. There'd been some suggestion in the previous 12 months that they might be a, a possibility, but nothing had really ever happened or, or been done about it. She just sort of travelled through the first three years of her life 
without anything happening. And then the, last, the previous 12 months before she came, she suffered a whole pile of traumatic experiences through placements collapsing. And we were her fourth placement in 12 months. And then she came to us and we instantly thought, well, you know, little brother's got FASD. She showed all the signs. We're going to put intervention in and we're going to start the process of getting her diagnosed, which we did for her as well. But that's a pretty traumatic experience for a child that sort of come from no intervention to get all this intervention instantly sort of thrown in a lap plus new placement and, you know, different rules and different parents. It was a very traumatic period and it took a good two years for her to settle in and two years for us to be able to actually decipher, you know, what parts of her behaviour were due to a trauma and what parts were probably due to a FASD. It took two and a bit years to get a diagnosis for her because of those issues. So it was a different journey to a little brother and we can see now through their schooling what an advantage it has been for him to have been able to get that early intervention that she didn't get. What are the major challenges you face caring for children with FASD? Yeah, it's an incredibly challenging journey and I think any parent regardless of who they are or what their circumstances go through, it it really is a very testing thing because there are so many things happen with these kids that nobody understands and a lot of people can't explain and they have terrible regulation and you know, they can't control their emotions. And you know, when when our daughter came, this would not be completely exaggerating the situation. So she might have four tantrums, and I mean full-blown tantrums, screaming, throwing things at the wall, smashing doors, kicking furniture, and those tantrums might last an hour to two hours each. Sometimes, you know, a tantrum could last three and four hours. I think probably her best one, she sat in my office because I was working from home in those days, and she stood in my office having a tantrum for probably the best part of four hours without a break. So she was... Incredibly strong, but that's amazingly taxing. Mm. Uh, and during that period, you know, we sort of understood what we we're up against because we had a couple of years with a, with a little bloke by that stage. And so to try and stay calm and collected and, and focused on what you're doing and, and understanding that, you know, this behaviour was something that wasn't anything she could control as such is, is challenging for anybody. And we were lucky. We had three of us in the house because I had my adult son doesn't actually live in the house with us, but he lives on the property with us. So we had three adults could sort of support each other and ultimately support her to get through it. But it is incredibly challenging and frustrating. I walked her to school every day and every day we discussed the colour of the school uniform, which is green, and pointed out that the trees are green, the lawn is green, and you know, the next day we'd go and I'd say, so what colour is your uniform? She'd go blue. And so you get all these things that sort of contradict what you're trying to say, and then you've got to decide, is it behaviour or, or is it brain damage? I think that's a difficult thing. So you've got to change your expectations. And then you'd get the day she'd go, oh, yes, it's green. You go, yes, well, we're done. We, we've finally broken this. But then the next day I'd go, so what colour's the uniform? Can you point it out? Oh, it's blue. And she'd show you a blue flower. And you go, oh. you know, so you're constantly tested, constantly exposed to this terrible thing that the child can't understand. But as an adult, 
very difficult for an adult to understand as well and understand that you need to change your expectations. That you need to perhaps stop trying the same things over and over again. What we say is, you know, you know don't try harder, try different, find another way to get through. So it's very challenging, it's very frustrating, but then you know, one day she came home and said, you know, oh, look, I've got all these pencils in my pencil case and this one's mauve and this one's pink and this one's navy blue and this one's light blue. And she went from unable to distinguish green from yellow from blue to being able to understand the whole spectrum of colours overnight. Well, at that point in time, we didn't really understand why that was. We've sort of got a better handle on it now. But then you sort of go, well, will it stay? In her case, that did. But sometimes it doesn't. It might disappear the next day and then it'll come back four weeks later. So trying to come to terms with all that as an adult who thinks that, well, once you've learned something, you should be able to incorporate it and keep it there and understand that it comes and goes for these kids is an extremely challenging process. But I would also say at the same time, the journey has been incredibly rewarding as well because when you see those moments that she realises she's understood something or he's understood something that he didn't understand yesterday, you get to ride the emotion of, of how much achievement and success means to these kids because they have so little in their life. That's part of the problem for the parents is that, you know, without success, there's not much hope and, you know, constant failure just brings everybody down. So it's a challenging journey for everybody, but one for me, I would say it's been enlightening. I'd say it's actually changed my life. It's amazing how you stay so positive, Neil. You always you sound so positive despite the children in your care's memory difficulties, despite the tantrums. You, you sound very positive. I'm guessing it's those, those little times where your children do say those little moments you mentioned before. That do, Are they the kind of things that keep you going or is it, is it something else? Yeah. Yeah, I think it's very important that you have to understand, you know, small steps lead to a large journey. With your own children, you know, those steps are like everybody else's. The only difference with a fast teacher, when the steps are different, and sometimes they go backwards a few times before they go forward, and sometimes they're much smaller than everybody else's. But they're still positive. There's still movement forward. There's still success. And once you understand that the more success you create for these kids, the more they strive to be like everybody else, the more return you get. And I've played a lot of sports, so I was very lucky. I've always had coaches and, and people saying, you know, you've got to, to, to be successful, you've got to be able to encourage people and look at the positive side and lift people up and give them that boost. Well, firstly, kids need that constantly because, you know, they're not, their brain damage is such that they look around and see that other kids can do things and they can't. And that can, that can bring anybody down. And it does great on them. If you don't take the attitude of ensuring that they make the most out of their success, then the journey becomes extremely difficult and probably too hard for everybody. And it's not just the child that suffers, it's also the people around them. Um, and, and our kids, they're never going to be the Prime Minister of Australia. They've achieved amazing things. Things that when I first read, the first book I read said, wrap them up in brown paper pretty much and chuck them in the bed. There's no other. And, you know, my attitude to that was, well, I'm a bit of a, I played a lot of sport, as I said, I'm a bit of a believer that can't say, I don't, I don't accept no. I couldn't believe that that could be the case, that surely there must be some hope. There's always got to be hope in whatever you do. And so I thought to myself, well, I've I just got to find a way to get through to these kids to create that hope. 
And over the nine-year journey we now realise there are lots of positives. Finding them is difficult. Promoting them is extremely challenging. But when you get there, it's just the reward. If you set your expectations realistically and they outstrip those expectations, which my kids do all the time, I realise that they are giving their absolute best. And, you know, success is relative. Success is about doing better than what everybody thinks you can do, not not being the best. It's about being able to do your best. And these kids try their absolute heart out. And most as they kids have got that. They just want to be like everybody else. They just want to be accepted and they love to be successful. So if you can create that scenario, then it makes the journey, you know, the journey for us has been tough, but it's also been incredibly enlightening. So, Honestly, that's amazing advice to other carers who are looking after, or parents or carers who are looking after a child with FASD. Have you got any other advice? Yeah, I think it's important. For these kids, it's incredibly important that we take a holistic view to their life. And what we found, the most successful thing we found is that we've been able to get therapists and doctors and education people to support them and to follow our lead. Because I think that's the important thing for these kids. Everybody, you have to have a positive attitude. And that, it's no good having a positive attitude though, and then sending them to school where the teacher just drives them into the ground. The teacher has to have the same attitude, has to realise that if they lead from the front and they encourage and support enough, they'll get amazing things out of these kids. And then they need to be rewarded for it. So we're very positive in promoting anything that anybody around us does that we think is good for the kids. And we've seen these kids thrive. And so probably the greatest thing that I find is, so my my daughter is a phenomenal swimmer. Mind you, it took her eight goes. So that's eight turns. So that's a bit over, a bit over two years to get out of level two. And now currently she's swimming at a level 11 mm-hmm. at 12 years of age. So she can swim and she can swim really well. But what drove that was one swimming teacher that was, I suppose, a bit obsessed and driven with the same sort of attitude we've got. That, you know, if you work hard enough, you get the reward. And then all of a sudden she started to get this amazing reward walk around the swimming pool like she was floating on, on air because she, this kid could swim and could swim really well. So success generates for everybody. It just didn't generate for my daughter. It generated for that teacher. And what that did was then give her the opportunity because it's never going to be good at school. That's just a fact of life. But when they went to swimming lessons and all the kids in her class said, well, I don't want to go off to the swimming lessons. All the kids in her class headed off to the baby pool and they grabbed Lena and said, well, come on, come on with us. And the teacher stopped everybody and said, no, no, Lena doesn't swim in the baby pool. She's going to swim in the big pool with all the year fives and sixes and she's in year three or four at the stage. All the kids look and went, wow. And then Lena jumps in the pool and swims with year fives and sixes and can actually swim better than most of them. And what that did was change everybody else's attitude about where she stood. So, all right, she's not the best at maths in the class, probably the worst well and truly. But, man, when you put her in the swimming pool, that's where she shines and everybody likes to see someone that's successful um, and sport and those sort of things carry a high degree of uh, credibility. And so... All of a sudden, the attitude of those students and peers changed completely towards her and the way they dealt with her changed completely and so did her self-esteem because all of those kids, they don't have high self-esteem. So it's important that you get everybody on board and you find some kind of currency or something these kids can be successful at. 
because if they can be successful, then all of a sudden that changes their whole purpose for what they're doing. So instead of fighting you about everything because they're constantly a failure, um, and that's what these kids do, it's not that they, um, as, as your other podcasters said, it's not that they can't do the work, you know, they don't want to do the work, they just can't. So how do you fight that? You go, oh, I'm not going to do it. That's all they say. Come defiance and then it just becomes a battle and you lose. If you can change that from that negative aspect to the positive aspect of if you can do this, you'll be successful, and the kids see they can be successful, and it changes their whole personality and their whole attitude. Like anybody, we're desperate. We're desperate to be accepted. We're desperate to be successful. And when those kids find that, all of a sudden they continue, or we believe they continue that journey to being you know, like I said, they're not going to be the Prime Minister of Australia, but they can be like everybody else, all they desire. All right, time for the big question. This is the big one. I ask, This is the one I ask all my podcast guests. Is there more our listeners could be doing as individuals or we could be doing as a whole society, support carers and people with FASD? Yeah, I think it's very important for the community to educate themselves and to learn about FASD so they can understand that this kid's behaviour is not relevant, first of all, to um, bad parenting. Because that's what so often happens. You know, oh, you know, if you discipline the child, you know, he wouldn't or she wouldn't behave like this. And also understanding that, you know, it's not that they won't do it, it's that they can't and so they need support. And then that would create a much greater understanding and empathy for the parents and those kids. And when everybody's on board, then you can drive a successful scenario. As I said, it, it needs a holistic approach. Really, for a FASD kid, it takes a whole village to raise them. You can't expect any two parents or any one parent to be able to bring one of these children up without support. And we're great believers that one of the reasons we're successful is that we got into that program for Telephone and then we were able to educate people and they were driven to support us and the child and that's where the success came. And if we could all understand that, we could get that message out into the community that these children can be successful because, you know, reality is 80% of them are going to either end up in jail or homeless or in a mental institution or, or unable to thrive in the community and offer any success. We're just going to be a burden. Well, if we could change that, everybody wins. That's the thing. If I can get if I can get my two children so they can live in the community without causing any burden on anybody else, then they will have been successful. If you get people to understand that and to support that, then there's much greater chance for those kids to be successful and not become a problem in the community and not continue to cost us financial loss because the reality is if we don't support these kids, they do become a financial burden on the community. And so we've all got a responsibility, whether we accept it or not, to be able to help these kids. And also it's very important for people to understand no judgment. This is not about whether mum drank or whether dad was this or that. It's none of that. It's purely and simply about the what's happened has happened. You can't turn the clock back. Um, but you can change what the future holds for them and that's a critical thing for those kids. Amazing words, Neil. Honestly, hands down, amazing words. I want to thank you for coming on the show and volunteering your wisdom, honestly. It's been, it sounds like you've been on quite the journey and you've got a, more of the journey on ahead of you. Yes, our daughter is still only 12, so we've still got a lot ahead of us and a lot of hard work. We understand that. But as I said, the journey's been incredibly enlightening for me and, and life-changing. I think I have learned more in the last nine years 
and I learned him, I'm not going to say how many years before that, but it was enough to, to more than double those nine. It's been an incredibly rewarding experience mm. to see them flourish and, and be able to survive in a mainstream school and, and do things that were never expected of them has been greatly rewarding. So although it was very tough in the beginning and it continues to be tough on a day-to-day basis, I think it's fair to say we don't regret it for one second. It, it's been a, an absolute privilege to have them and we look forward, even though it will be tough, we look forward to the, the next 10, 20 years, however long the journey continues on. You sound yeah. You sound very proud of that, Neil, and you should be proud. You should, you've you've done a lot for these kids, and it sounds like these kids have done a lot for you as well. Yeah, I think clearly we've gained uh, as much out of it as they have, and and I am very proud of the fact that my, my daughter can swim at you know at a, at a level eleven swimming achievement and can compete in competitions, and and a little brother is a is a phenomenal competitor in athletics. He's, because of his size, he doesn't have much success. But once again, success is not measured by us by winning. It's his ability to compete and absolutely give 110%. When he crosses the line, absolutely exhausted, having given everything to be able to look up at the crowd and smile as he crosses the line, makes it all worth a million dollars. So we've been very privileged to be on the journey. Well, thank you, Neil. Thanks for coming on the show. All right, it's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Pregnancy and Alcohol, The Surprising Reality. Please tune in next week for another episode of Our Little Podcast. If you like this podcast episode, then please show your support by leaving a rating and review on iTunes. Every little bit helps. All rights reserved. For more information about FASD, then please go to www.nofasd.org.au.